Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, March 28th, 2021, and happy Passover to all those celebrating and to everyone else. Hope you had a great weekend. Absolutely. Today on Polylog, we're going to be looking at all sorts of topics. My shows didn't really kind of have a lot of consensus of what they were talking about. So it feels like very much like a Polylog throwback pre-COVID when there was a lot of different things we could talk about. Yeah, it's almost like the first press conference of the Biden administration. Nobody asked him about COVID-19. Well, that That did did come up on Meet the Press. Oh, good. And Peter Baker had an interesting answer for that. But... Before we talk about what we're going to talk about, what did you watch, Brendan? So I took a look at Fox News Sunday. I looked at Face the Nation. And I also looked at This Week. Yep. And that means I looked at Meet the Press and State of the Union. State of the Union was hosted by Dana Bash. This Week was hosted by John Carl. So today I'm going to be talking about mainly gun violence and a little bit about kind of voter protection slash voter suppressions. Brendan, what are you talking about? I'm going to be talking a little about immigration and then voter suppression as well and voting rights. All Mm -hmm. right. So let's get started. Quality, questionable. What do you want to start with, Brendan? I need to start. You need to start. Yes. I need to start with questionable because my quality is connected to it, but questionable has to come first. Okay, you go first. So this is from this week. This is Nate Silver. He was back. He's really not there weekly anymore with his... Do you buy that segment? Oh, yeah. What's going on there? He's just an occasional visitor to the show. And this week, he was speaking on voting rights. Here is kind of his take and kind of where he took the conversation. There is a reason why, historically, Republicans have tried to make it harder for people to vote. Looking at changes in state voting laws since the 1990s, our research at 538 found that, in general, when voting laws are eased, it tends to help Democrats. And when they're restricted, it tends to help Republicans. Based on the historical data, imposing a sweeping set of new restrictions might help a Republican candidate by as much as two to three percentage points in forthcoming elections. That's significant given how close many elections are these days. But as they warn you when you're buying stocks, past performance is no guarantee of future results. That might also be the case when it comes to voting laws. Here's why. With that said, I don't want to take this too far. A lot of the GOP changes are aimed at hampering turnout among black voters by limiting programs like souls to the polls. So I buy this will probably make life harder for Democrats, but there's a chance it could backfire. Thanks, Nate. Now let's get to our roundtable. So I cut out the center of that where he goes deep into the data, but you kind of get a sense of the framing there in the clips that we provided, the start and the end. And basically what he does is he talks about it as if it's just another political tactic. You know, reducing access to the ballot is just another political tactic like any other political tactic. But it's not like that, right? Like, this is fundamental to what our democracy is. Speaking in the tone and in the tenor that Nate Silver does speak here, like it is just another political tactic, it's akin to saying, 
you know, there's support for lynchings because political violence and racial terror has provided big gains for the party in depressing turnout. Similarly, poll taxes and tests have shown an 8.5 percentage point effectiveness level at boosting the chances of the party in power. It's like, no, that is not acceptable. It is not okay to be talking about these anti-democratic tactics as if they are just political tactics. This is essentially in a system of government based on democracy, this is criminal. I mean, frankly, I mean, it, it feels like it is fundamentally against what our system is. It is almost a form of political violence to reduce the ability of certain groups to access the polls and participate in democracy, which we have seen, as I mentioned some of these other things, used quite effectively at reducing black voter turnout. Lynchings, racial terror, political violence, poll taxes, tests, all of these things have been used to reduce the political voice of minorities in this country. But we do not treat them as if they are just another political tactic to be analyzed and dissected with percentage points in the way that Nate Silver does here. Right. It's kind of such a basic, gross simplification to just say it helps Republicans or it helps Democrats when there's actual rights that are lost. Absolutely. There are a lot of things that would help Republicans or help Democrats that are literally against the law or against our system of government. But you said that your quality was tied to this? Yeah, it is, because this wasn't universal across the shows that every host and journalist and analyst was speaking as if voting rights was just another political tactic. There were some hosts who took it very personally, some of these restrictions, and one of those hosts was Chris Wallace on Fox News Sunday. Here is Chris Wallace on the panel speaking with Josh Holmes, former chief of staff to Mitch McConnell in the Senate. Who's often on Fox News Sunday. Yeah, he is often a guest on the panel. And the first voice you'll hear in this exchange is Holmes talking about the very restrictive voting law that was just passed in Georgia last week. As to Georgia, Chris, the one piece that I would emphasize, because I've heard it a couple times on this program, that the idea that they've criminalized giving people bottles of water, they have not. What is in the statute, what is absolutely clear, is that they're preventing political organizations from giving people in line things, meals, water, what have you. Water is and should be provided at the poll for people who are standing in line. We need to be very careful about what we're talking about here because Democrats have entirely misrepresented what's happening. Well, wait a minute, Josh. In fact, it does say that it, it bans providing water or food to people at the polls. Why would that be? I mean, I, I know one of the arguments as well, if people are at the polls, then uh, an advocacy group can go and it's like you're near the election line and you're able to, uh, to, to uh, electioneer them. My gosh, people have been driving people to the polls of both parties for years. It, in a lot of African-American communities, the polls are the lines are longer because there are not enough polls in those communities. Are you really suggesting that it should be wrong to provide water or drinks to people waiting on line no. to exercise their Democratic franchise? No, I'm not. What I'm suggesting is wrong is to suggest that the law. Well, does that's what that, the law says, it Josh. It, it, that's what the law it, says. Josh. It doesn't. Chris, it very specifically yes, it says that it can't be provided by political entities seeking to, to uh, one way or another, 
influence an outcome of a vote. And I think there's a significant difference between that. You talk about people getting rides to the polls. Absolutely. What's it's a political entity? A person with a T-shirt? A person with a union T-shirt? A person with a gun rights well, T-shirt? One of the other specific things, Josh, that this bill does is it says that counties can cut off voting, for instance, at 5 p.m. So if you're a working person who's getting off your shift, the county can cut off early voting at 5 p.m., makes it impossible for you to go vote. It also limits the number of, of uh, drop-off boxes. You know, I voted in the last election on drop-off boxes. I actually think making it easier for me to vote is a good thing. Yeah, so look, I disagree with the hours. I think that's a mistake. I think you should probably extend that. But in terms of the drop boxes, what we're trying, we're pretending as though a pandemic didn't exist, right? There are a bunch of things that happened during the course of the 2020 election that required drop boxes and things like that. What this law actually does is codify the fact that drop boxes can exist. All they're saying is it should be at the polling location. Well, this debate will be continued. Thank you for engaging at a panel. Was there really strong points about making voting as convenient as possible. And it's interesting when you think of like a white person describing why it's good for voting to be easy. It seems like so it seems like a given. Right. But then when you're talking about like black or minority groups trying to vote, it suddenly feels like much more political. It reminds me of something that I was going to talk about it, but I just couldn't squeeze it in on Meet the Press the, on the panel. Chuck Todd Tana talks about this where he says, like, if a voter was a consumer, these would be anti-consumer laws. Like yeah. you're making it more difficult to do the thing. To, to Like if we thought of voting as like a purchase, yeah. all these things are making it harder to make that purchase. And he's like, and that's actually kind of quite anti-conservative that's not a conservative sentiment to be so anti-consumer why are they so easy to be like anti-voter so it kind of reminds me of that same premise it's like why are you making it so hard to do this thing that everyone is entitled to do well and that's the point like entitled is the is the point right i mean that is what i appreciated from chris wallace not only did he paint the picture of what these laws will actually mean in people's lives the you know not being able to vote after work which is horrible, or the the waiting in line at the polls, you know, African-American communities in long lines. And he he phrases it at the end of his first question that we heard there. Are you really suggesting it should be wrong to provide water or drinks to people waiting in line to exercise a democratic franchise? This is a right in our democracy. And I appreciated that tone from Chris Wallace rather than what we heard from Nate Silver, as if it is just another political tactic to get points on the board. I mean, this is like the going back to Nate Silver. It, it's kind of why sometimes people are really frustrated by the 538 blog or the 538 podcast where everything is what is the political impact on any issue, right? What does this mean on the polls? What does this mean in terms of fave unfavor? Like everything is terms of how does this impact political sentiment as opposed to thinking about like fundamental rights. Yeah, absolutely. There are certain things where... We should not talk about them as if they are just political tactics, because it is, in effect, endorsing them as being OK, as being on the table, as being something that right. is acceptable. You know, Nate Silver loves to talk about the Overton window. Well, by speaking in the way that he's speaking, he is opening that window and saying that these type of tactics are totally politically acceptable because look at the data and look at the effectiveness. Just to wrap this up, your issue is that there is... 
it seems unethical almost to talk about certain actions as just pure political gains when there is... There are human rights at the core right, of it. Right, yeah. exactly. Human civic rights. Yeah. Naomi, we covered both of mine in uh, kind of quick, quick succession there. What are your questionable or quality moments you want to share? So you're going to be quite surprised. I don't have a questionable this week. Oh my gosh, like me last week. I know. And I was like so <laughs> angry last week. And I was like, I really thought about it. I'm like, there's nothing terribly questionable. All right, good. So I don't have a questionable. I have a note and I have a quality moment. So first to the note, I'm not going to be talking about it, but I'm talking about it a little bit now, I guess. On State of the Union, Dr. Sanjay Gupta was on kind of giving a preview of a CNN special report that came out this evening, and it's called COVID War, The Pandemic Doctors Speak Out. And we heard a little bit from his interviews with Dr. Burks and some of the stuff they're talking about. I can't really talk too much about the segment with Dr. Sanjay Gupta on State of the Union, because it was pretty much just a preview of the full CNN report two-hour special that came out Sunday evening today. And it, it, it doesn't seem like it. Th- there's enough to talk about. But what I wanted to say is I'm actually really excited for this special report. It has six doctors that were in the administration with President Trump. It has Dr. Brett Drouin, the Assistant Secretary for Health. It had Dr. Stephen Hahn from the FDA, Dr. Deborah Burks, who is head of the Criminal Task Force in the White House, Dr. Anthony Fauci, head of infectious diseases, Dr. Robert Redfield from the CDC, and Dr. Robert Cadlick, the Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services for Preparedness and Response. It's supposed to kind of be like a, a look back as to what they learned and what it was like working within the Trump administration and what have you. And I love these types of interviews. And I think there's an opportunity for the average voter, the average American to kind of really learn about what their government is doing well and what they're not and what what those learning lessons are. I see a lot of pushback on Twitter like, well, it's too late or why didn't they do such and such and you should have spoken up when or whatever. And I fundamentally disagree. I think more information is always valuable to learn. And so I hope that people watch this. And I know that's going to be one of my top priorities for the week is to kind of sit down and watch this two hour special because I think like we're not out of the woods yet. There's probably going to be another public health crisis in my lifetime. And I'd like to know what our government can do better. So just kind of want to put a plug there about interesting different types of quality journalism. Absolutely. And I just want to expand on that, that these types of lookbacks are case studies in any sort of crisis mode, right? Like they are things that anyone can learn from when their organization might be facing a crisis. Absolutely. It doesn't have to be a public health crisis in the government. It doesn't even have to be a government crisis. Any type of crisis, we can learn from these sorts of lookbacks and case case studies. Absolutely. Best practices. Like why wouldn't you want to have that? And by the way, as we were about to record here, we got a breaking news notification about Dr. Deborah Burks sharing her assessment that thousands of Americans died needlessly during the crisis. Absolutely. So that's kind of my note. My <laughs> Go ahead. So my quality, though, is an interview that I saw on State of the Union. I think it might have been your quality last week, Brendan, or maybe a couple weeks ago, when you mentioned Dana Bash's Badass Women of Washington. Yes. I think that was last week. I don't know what is time. I think it was. But today she interviewed... 
Congresswoman Nikema Williams. She is a congresswoman from Georgia. She actually is representing the same district that Congressman John Lewis represented for so long. Mm. And she was kind of a mentee of his. And, you know, he was, a, you know, a key figure in her career and her leadership. And I just want to say I and I kind of realized this today. I love interviews with freshmen, congressmen and women. There are 435 representatives in Congress. And in general, we talk about like 20 of them, maybe 25. And there's a real shame in that because these people were elected from their communities. They are valued. They're respected. And regardless of party, it it says something about that geographic region that they are there. Right. And so. I like I, I just like I love learning about different parts of the country through the representatives. And I've kind of got that sentiment today in this interview with Congresswoman Williams. I wanted to share two clips from it. The first clip is kind of Congresswoman Williams and her kind of fish out of water moment and getting invited to a big event in Washington. And the second clip I'll share is her describing when she was arrested in 2018 when she attended a protest as a Georgia state senator. Williams is a freshman member of Congress, so new that when she got an email inviting her to the congressional signing of the COVID relief bill, the enrollment ceremony, she had to look it up. I was like, yes, but then I had to go to Google because I didn't know what an enrollment ceremony was. With voting rights under fire, she's learning the ropes fast, using her new role as congresswoman to fight for nationwide voting protections as Republicans back home in Georgia pass a law limiting access to voting. When I talked leading up to the election, people were like, oh, that's cute. They think that they're going to win. Republicans are pushing back and they're upset that we were able to win. And so they're going to do everything in their power right now to restrict access to people who mainly look like me from voting. You are the first black woman to represent the 5th District in Georgia. I just know that there are so many people that are looking to me to make sure that I move us like one step closer to full equality. And like Congressman Lewis often said, each generation has an obligation to move us one step closer. And so it's my turn to pick up the mantle. As a Georgia state senator in 2018, she says she went to check out a protest in the Capitol and ended up getting arrested. It was not John Lewis-style civil disobedience. In our state constitution, um, legislators are free from arrest. Like, we're not even allowed to be arrested in our constitution. And that day, they took me to jail in zip ties and booked me in the county jail. I was told that I needed to remove my clothes so that they could strip search me. (gasps) Would that ever have happened if you were a white man? So not only would it never have happened, but it didn't happen because there were colleagues of mine standing there with me in the rotunda. This is still a town full of white men. What's it like? Um, I think that January 6th put it in perspective for me. To see that Confederate flag going through the rotunda of the Capitol was like someone was trying to send a reminder that no matter how far we get in this country, that trying to put us in our place. And what do you do with that reminder? I push forward. And I mean, it makes me want to do more. Georgia is a state moving forward. Wow, that's really powerful. Yeah, and every Congress man and woman has... 
I don't know if a story quite as powerful, but has some story about how and why they got there. And I just look forward to learning more of them. And I encourage our listeners, I encourage everyone to be curious about the leaders of other parts of the country. Well, all of that said, there was another instance of a new incoming congresswoman, and it was a profile sort of interview by Margaret Brennan of Julia Letlow. She is a representative-elect who is from Louisiana, Republican, who's stepping into the shoes of her husband who died of COVID in December. I remember that. Yeah. And so that was a that was a very powerful interview. And uh, Brennan talked about her priorities and her background and how she's dealing with the grief of loss. And it was uh, it was really good to see it on Face the Nation. We don't really see that that frequently. Yeah, Face that's, the Nation. that's pretty atypical for Face the Nation. Yeah. Well, Naomi, speaking of the shows, you know, let's look at the journalists that stood out to you this week. Yeah. So for my something about journalism, I wanted to talk about Meet the Press. So Meet the Press had a special episode today Mm -hmm. in which they mainly talked about gun violence. And they've been doing special episodes a lot more frequently this year. They didn't talk anything about the border and even the voting rights stuff was just kind of like a blip on the show. It really was focused on gun violence and mass shootings and things like that. And so I wanted to look at how they approach this topic and worthwhile interviews or worthwhile questions and the kind of the structure of it all. The first thing I wanted to share was the opening. I thought Chuck Todd had a really strong summary and shocked me, who I think I I kind of follow this issue pretty closely. Good Sunday morning. The satirical website The Onion follows a ritual whenever there's a mass shooting in this country. Running this headline. No way to prevent this, says only nation where this regularly happens. There's truth and humor, and in this case, it's a dark truth. Consider. March 16th, eight people, including six women of Asian descent, killed in and near Atlanta. March 17th, five shot in a drive-by shooting in Stockton, California. March 18th, eight people shot in Gresham, Oregon. And New Orleans. March 20th, two killed, 17 wounded in mass shootings in Philadelphia, Dallas, and Houston. Monday, 13 killed, another five wounded in Boulder, Colorado, Detroit, and Cleveland. Tuesday, two killed, six wounded in Aliceville, Alabama, and Atlanta. Friday, six killed, 25 wounded in Chicago, Memphis, Philadelphia, and Virginia Beach. Yesterday, one killed, 13 wounded in River Grove, Illinois, Chicago, and Yazoo City, Mississippi. All that since the spa attacks. It was compiled by the nonprofit group Gun Violence Archive, which defines a mass shooting as four or more people being shot, not including the perpetrator. After a high-profile incident, U.S. politicians follow their own ritual. Democrats say enough is enough, time to get an assault weapons ban. Passed. Republicans say enough about gun control. This is a mental health problem, and we need to protect the Second Amendment. And what happens? Nothing gets done. For a year, we have been obsessed with a pandemic, and our medical system has done a brilliant job attacking that problem. But when it comes to our epidemic of gun violence, our political system has no answers. Wow, very powerfully done. Yeah, I... I heard that intro and I was like, okay, these people have done some serious work here to be able to frame this conversation. And it kind of really piqued my interest right at the start. And made some important choices in the framing too, right? Like 
they didn't just do the research. They they decided, here's how we're going to present this. Yes. I think, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, It he frames it as gun violence. A lot of my frustration, and again, we'll share this more in, in a later interview, is seems to be more about mass shootings, which I feel like is like the easier conversation for media institutions, for journalists to have. It's one thing to say you're going to talk about gun violence, but then to only talk about mass shootings. And that part kind of really frustrates me a yeah. lot. And we'll, I'll show a couple examples of that. But another component of this episode that I thought was important to note was an interview with Senator Chris Murphy. He's a senator from Connecticut. And Chuck Todd asks him essentially, when can we go beyond background checks? Which has been pretty much the focus for years and years and years and nothing has gotten done. We've spent almost our entire time about what some would describe as a modest change in our background check system. We haven't talked about new regulations about uh, the guns themselves, the debate, the fact that um, the, the gun that was used in Boulder is, is somehow called a pistol. Um, and those things it are is actually regulating the gun itself a political impossibility right now. Um, I think right now our best chance to get something passed uh, is universal background checks. Um, and I think that the theory of the case is that once we convince Republicans that the sky doesn't fall for you politically, uh, when you support a reasonable expansion of something like uh, background checks, you can move on to other interventions. Um, but yeah, we should be having a broader conversation right now because, you know, in Connecticut, it's not just universal background checks that, pr- that protects our citizens. We require you to get a permit before you buy a pistol, something that had it been in effect in these states might have prevented one of the shooters from getting a gun. We include all assaults, not just felony assaults, on the prohibited list of purchasers for firearms. That likely would have stopped the shooter uh, in Colorado from being able to get a weapon. So it's not just background checks. There's a whole host of other interventions that lead to states like Connecticut having much lower rates of gun crime than other states. So this question around the legislative feasibility of focusing on anything beyond background checks. I mean, Chris Murphy, Senator Murphy, is pretty blunt and honest here, saying pretty much the only thing that it's possible is background checks. He spends more in the interview talking about why we should start there. I wish I don't disagree with Senator Murphy. I just wish there was a recognition that as a country, we're actually kind of bored with such small incremental yes. proposals yeah. and solutions. Yeah, well, it is a very legitimate question from Chuck Todd, and it's one worth underscoring. It's one worth asking repeatedly and expanding on, because look at what the Democrats have been doing recently, right? You look at the assault on voting rights, as we were talking about, throughout the country right now, and there was an act, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, and that dealt with some of the direct issues at, at, at question. But there's also something called H.R. 1. And that's what Democrats are really trying to push. Not that they're not trying to push the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, but it is a much larger voting rights package. It's aspirational. It's aspirational. In its very nature. And within that package, it's not just about making sure people can get bottled water when they're waiting in line, right? It is about federal funding for elections. It is about... The federal government having more control over redistricting and drawing the line so that there is less gerrymandering. It is about so much more than just 
the basics of same-day voter registration or whatever. Right. And look at what the Democrats did with the latest COVID relief bill, right? Republicans kept complaining, this isn't just about COVID relief. This is money that is going in to kind of stimulate the economy and, and help, you know, help people beyond, and it's what we've you know, seen around beyond the single Medicare year. for all, right? right. And there was, they were, Democrats wanted to put in the $15 minimum wage into that bill. Right. So Democrats have been taking big bites out of the apple. Like they have been trying to do giant bills, very ambitious pieces of legislation that aren't just the, oh, just background checks or whatever, which as Chuck Todd seems to be implying and suggesting here, and as we all know, is not going to significantly limit the number of people who die from gun violence in this country. Right. And I go, I really vacillate between the honesty of Chris Murphy, Senator Murphy's answer here, where it's saying like, this is what needs to, this is where we can start. And Republicans need to realize that like there doesn't have to be insane political fallout for moving on this issue. Yeah. But at the same time, I question the Democrats' judgment to send someone like Murphy or a voice like Senator Murphy's that is so moderate and so kind of... There's nothing bold about what he's saying, I guess. And this is an interview to convince Republicans that this is worth doing. This is not from Senator Murphy's point. Senator Murphy did not come on the show to invigorate Democratic voters that like, yes, we're working on this. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And so that's kind of my my frustration here where, you know, kudos for for Chuck Todd for pushing this conversation beyond background checks. I kind of wish he would have stayed on it a little bit more because it's not enough for journalists to hold the conversation where politicians feel comfortable. Yeah. I, this reminds me of something that I have been rather frustrated by, both in the Sunday shows and the overall political press, and that is the lack of sophistication in trying to understand what the Biden administration is doing and what their priorities are. During the press conference that took place last week, one of the most interesting things that Joe Biden said was when he was asked about gun violence. Mr. President, sorry, I know you have another chance to address uh the tragedies in Georgia and Colorado. Uh, you had said to stay tuned for actions that you might take on gun control. I'm wondering if you've made a decision either about sending the manufacturer liability bill that you had promised on day one to Capitol Hill or executive actions like going after ghost guns or giving money to cities and states to, to battle gun control. All the above. It's a matter of timing. As you've all observed, Successful presidents, better than me, have been successful in large part because they know how to time what they're doing. Order it. Decide in priorities what needs to be done. The next major initiative is to rebuild the infrastructure, both physical and technological infrastructure in this country so that we can compete and create significant numbers of really good paying jobs. Essentially saying, look, this isn't, this is, I want to do something big, but it's not at the top of the list right now. Right now I'm going to focus on infrastructure. And then Biden went in to talk a lot about infrastructure. I really wish there was more sophistication in anticipating what that priority 
was going to be and when that was going to happen. Because I can kind of, you can kind of get the sense of what might be coming down the line, but there's very little discussion of what that is. And I wish there was better reporting on it and even better conversation on it in saying, look, the Biden administration is not like the Trump administration, which seems to fly by the seat of its pants, seemed to fly for four years by the seat of its pants. And the infrastructure week was just a joke, right? The Biden administration is very set on making sure that infrastructure is the next big thing. They have telegraphed that for months, that it is COVID relief and then it is infrastructure. And they are not going to be deterred by immigration. They are not going to be deterred by mass shootings. They are going to focus on infrastructure next, And then we will see whether they choose immigration or gun violence or something else as their next big package. Interesting you say that because on State of the Union, there was kind of a brief conversation about this with Senator Reverend Warnock. Dana Bash essentially asked him, like, how are you going to move voting rights when Biden wants to work on infrastructure? And essentially asking him, don't you need Biden to kind of like be a cheerleader on this? So kind of another version of the senator or the Senate's perspective on what the Biden's priority list is. Absolutely. But then later, or kind of after Senator Murphy, Chuck Todd talks to Senator Pat Toomey, a Republican from Pennsylvania. And there was a question that came up that I thought was actually an excellent question and a pretty garbage answer from Senator Toomey. And it's the overall culture of gun ownership in this country. The first clip you'll hear is Senator Toomey's first answer, and then the kind of conversation continues, and then Chuck Todd goes back and asks a follow-up. So in between these next two clips, there's kind of, I guess what I'm trying to say is the follow-up wasn't immediate. Do you believe we have too many guns circulating in America? And if you do, what is a solution to that problem? Now, I don't think the answer is too many guns, Chuck. Um, if I have four or five guns and I buy two more, did, did America become a more dangerous place? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. Um, I'm not a dangerous person. My focus has always been make it more difficult for people that we all agree shouldn't have firearms, make it more difficult for them to get firearms. That is violent criminals, the dangerously mentally ill. Um, that's what we should focus on and trying to understand what drives the madness that we've seen uh, again uh, recently and and all so often that leads to these horrific mass killings. You know, whether whether a law-abiding citizen owns three guns or four, that has absolutely no impact on anybody's safety. I guess I go back to the two many guns. I understand what you're saying on an individual, but when you look at our numbers compared to the rest of the world, you know, why do you think we lead by a factor of, of, of 10 and then some when it comes to just the number of weapons circulating in this country? For a, there's a whole variety of reasons, Chuck, but I, I don't think that that's what causes the violence. There are communities that are have horrific levels of violence every day. There is there's criminality and, and using weapons is part of that. Um, Look, that's uh, we ought to be asking ourselves, why do we have high levels of crime generally? So I have so many frustrations with this because this question is valid by Chuck Todd. Why do we have so many guns in this country? And is it dangerous? And this answer by Toomey is factually incorrect for a variety of reasons. And yes, like a plethora of reasons. 
And just off the top of my head, we could loop in children having accidental fatal shootings. We can talk around mental health and domestic violence and suicides. Like there's so many ways to think about the violence and harm and loss of life due to guns that is beyond just mass shootings. And that's like the way Pat Toomey is answering this kind of makes it seem as if he's only thinking about kind of mass shootings. But my frustration, one, Chuck Todd's follow up is not immediate. And two, like, why ask this question if you don't have like some real rigorous data to motivate the question? Right. Like, it's a good question. What were you trying to get out of it? What were you trying to have him understand or have him answer to? Like, Yes. There, there's no. It, it, it's like a question without legs. Right. And that com that that one single question could have led to a whole line of questioning that would have been really fascinating right. to hear from Senator Toomey, and we get none of it because yep. the Meet the Press team didn't have follow up questions ready to go based in data yeah. or based off of like any expertise whatsoever, and it's just such such a lost moment like it's completely inexcusable yeah and it's i just keep going back to in my head like chris wallace would have the follow-up absolutely absolutely he would have the data at hand like it's it would have been a powerful turning point in the interview and it kind of just falls apart and then the other part and this is kind of going to close my segment here around the meet the press episode is that in the panel we have NBC News correspondent Vicky Nguyen was on, and she made a really important clarification after Senator Toomey's comments, specifically around gun ownership. I think what is frustrating for many people who are looking at the nexus of gun violence and now also this potential hate crime is when is it going to stop? When will you be able to change the way Americans view gun ownership? And that might never happen because We are a country that loves our guns. Americans make up 4.4% of the world's population, but own 44% of the world's guns. That's according to a New York Times survey. So unless or until there is any sort of amendment to the Constitution that changes gun ownership, these little legislation changes that take, first of all, forever to pass, feel like pennies being dropped in the ocean, just delaying and delaying and delaying. How many years has it been since Sandy Hook? What did you just tell us at the top of this show? How many shootings have we had just since Atlanta that most of us have no idea about? And let's not forget the most gun violence that affects Americans are actually suicides. A lot of veterans taking their own lives. Access to guns is, is inseparable from these shootings. But what is our tolerance level as Americans? Very well done. Follow up there. And it just got me thinking, like, because I was so enraged during the Senator Pat Toomey. Like, if you look at my raw notes, it's like, wah, you know, it's just like a lot of F-bombs and stuff. Mm -hmm. And and then I got to this quote from Vicky Nguyen, and she's like, finally, I, I felt like a little bit sane. And that was like, I'm so glad this was said on the show. But it just got me really frustrated overall with the general structure of a host leaning on his panel to make the clarifications that should have happened during the interview themselves. Yes. And I'm pretty sure we've talked about this before. I'm pretty sure I hated it. And I've said it on the microphone <laughs> on the podcast how much I hate it. But it just really drives me crazy because 
people don't always watch the full show. Yeah. And where's the responsibility of the journalist to make that distinction, to push back? If you never do it and you expect your panelists to do it, then politicians will go on your show assuming they're not going to get pushback on their blatantly false claims. Yeah. Like there's so many negative consequences for not pushing back during an interview and just assuming it will happen later in the show. Pushing back in the interview requires deep, deep preparation. Exactly. And oftentimes there isn't pushback either in the interview or in the panel or as we suggested and would love to see some fact checks at the end of the episode or at the end of the interview. But leaning on the panel to do that work for you or as we've seen on other shows at other times where the host will needle in there and kind of like say, well, actually, this is what should have happened or this is why they're wrong. It reminds me. And here's a Seinfeld reference for you. Oh, my when God. The whole, the whole, this is now becoming like a polylog regular. The whole Brendan. jerk store incident with George where he's kind of in a meeting and he's one upped by some some coworker, and then he thinks of his perfect oh, right. reply oh, like yeah. days later. <laughs> That's so heartbreaking when that yeah. happens. Yeah. And then he turns around in the car like, oh, yes, this is what I need to say, you know. So, yeah, I just have a lot of issues, not with what Vicky Newton said, but the fact that she had to say it so much later. So that was a long time to talk about gun violence and meet the press, but... It's a long time to talk about gun violence. I've spent years working (laughs) on the issue. I mean, on one polylog episode. Uh Brendan, what do you want to talk about next? So I want to talk about, in the politics section, the difference between what the Biden administration is saying about the crisis at the border and what we've been hearing from the Republicans and Democrats on the Sunday shows. And it's actually kind of interesting because we saw on the Sunday shows both Kate Bedingfield and Jen Psaki. These are the communications director and the press secretary for Joe Biden on the Sunday shows. These are two women who work directly with the president in Washington, D.C. But we also had on the Sunday shows Republicans and Democrats who visited the border recently in the last week and saw the conditions that were taking place in those border facilities with the unaccompanied minors. And these are facilities that have not been opened to the press. So they've seen it, these Democrats and Republicans, firsthand. And the members of the administration have been at the White House and have seen it from the kind of like political leadership administration level. So they're kind of telling different sides of the story. And it was interesting to see that contrast. So to start us off, take a listen to John Carl's actually very clear, crisp question at the start of his interview with White House Communications Director Kate Benningfield on this week. A lot to cover this morning with our first guest, White House Communications Director Kate Benningfield. Kate, thank you very much for joining us on this Sunday. I want to start with those images uh, from the Donna uh, Detention Center. I mean, obviously not acceptable, horrific, uh, not acceptable by the definition put forward by the president himself. What is the immediate problem to address this, and when will it be fixed? 
Well, the president is working as quickly as possible to address the situation. He's using every possible avenue to ensure that we're getting these kids out of Border Patrol custody and into HHS facilities as quickly as possible. You've seen him just this week announce that Fort Bliss, for example, and Lackland Air Force Base are going to open up beds to bring these kids in to, out of the Border Patrol facilities and into facilities that are uh, better for temporary housing for them. But that's a temporary solution. It's a temporary solution. Ultimately, what we need to do is address the root causes of migration. So what did John Carl ask there? He asked basically two questions. What is the immediate problem to address and when will it be fixed? And I actually really liked his question here because he's talking about the conditions and the photos that have been released at the detention center. This overcrowding taking place among these unaccompanied minors in these spaces where they do not belong, where by law they should not still be. They can only be there 72 hours. Many are there for 10 days or more. So no definition of what the problem is and why they're still there, and no explanation for when it will be fixed. This is the third time I have heard this direct question. It was asked last week, and we highlighted it on the Sunday shows, the win question that was asked by Dana Bash on State of the Union. No direct answer from the head of DHS, and he just kept dancing around, would not commit to the win question. And then at Joe Biden's press conference, it was asked directly, and Joe Biden would not commit to win. Joe Biden said he does not know win. Unacceptable. Unacceptable to hear from him. And then we hear it again. Now, it's been an entire week. Three times they have been asked this question. Three times they cannot define when beyond as soon as possible. Is that a day? Is it two days? Is it a week? Is it two weeks? It's certainly not a day or two days or a week because it's now been a week and this is not solved. Just completely unacceptable, absolute bungling of this issue and, and, and unbelievable, really. Just frankly unbelievable from a communication standpoint and from a management standpoint. If you're a communicator, if you're a professional communicator, even if the issues are murky, you need to set a deadline. You need to set a deadline for people. You need to commit to something, even when you don't know whether it's... Like, think about this. They were able to commit, and Dana Bash actually pointed this out last week, right? The Biden administration was able to commit way back in, like, I think it was December, January timeframe, that they would have 100 million shots in 100 days, when we didn't know what was possible. When we actually saw articles right after they made that commitment that that was completely beyond the moon. They were crazy to make that commitment. And then we slowly saw, oh, well, that commitment isn't big enough. And now they've doubled that commitment, but they made a commitment, a commitment months down the line when there were so many question marks out there related to distribution, related to manufacture, they were able to make the commitment because they knew they needed to set a goal and set a line and they're not doing it. It is a communications failure beyond the fact that it is an insane failure that they did not release photos or let the press in, and instead armed Republicans, the other side of the political spectrum, with the ability to go into these facilities to take these photos, to release it to the press, and to set the tone and set the agenda with their photos, the Republicans. I, I, it's, it's, it's an absolute, unbelievable c political failure. I mean... Communications failure. There are multiple failures here, yeah. right? It, it's like a moral embarrassment that we're in the same phase that we were literally during the Obama administration and this was happening. Like, we, it's like freaking annual Groundhog's Day with this issue. And there's been zero commitment 
to do something meaningful. And you're going to have people who, on a policy level, find this a failure and find it abhorrent. Yep. But then... If you are if you need to buy time to get your act together to operationally and politically get it right, then at least have your messaging on point. Yeah. Right. Like, why are you being so bad with your communication strategy? So it further underscores how bad your operational strategy yes. is. Yes, exactly. Right? Like. We it, it makes it hard to trust your operational rationale when your messaging rationale is a complete joke. It's also a joke. Yeah, exactly. I just want to say there was a moment during Biden's press conference when he was pressed on this issue where he basically said that if this isn't solved soon, you're going to see some change of leadership in these in these departments. Like it's clearly frustrating him. But again, where is the commitment here? What is going on? So that's what we heard some of what took place on the Sunday shows being messaged from the Biden administration directly. Here's what a Republican who visited one of those sites had to say about it on Fox News Sunday. This is this is Senator Lindsey Graham. I've been twice in the last two months. And here's what I learned this time that was different than last time. I had a two star uh, uh, Border Patrol supervisor tell me that they briefed the Biden transition team that if you do away with the remaining Mexico policy where people have to wait in Mexico for their court date regarding asylum will be overwhelmed. If you change the policy regarding unaccompanied minors, we'll be overwhelmed. They were told this, they did it anyway. Now this echoes reporting that we heard on Face the Nation last week where this exact sort of question was asked by Margaret Brennan. And I will note that Republicans were actually, they kind of had their communications game together in this. Multiple Republicans who were on the Sunday shows who had been down to the border said very, very similar things. And their message was on point. They talked about the fact that the Biden administration had been warned about these policy changes. They basically used the same words and said, look, Kate Benningfield and Jen Psaki need to go down to the border and see what's going on here. They need to understand what's happening. And certainly Republicans have their own ideas of what the solutions are, and they are very defensive of what Donald Trump's position was. But they actually went down, they saw what was going on there, and some of the things that they said, like what Graham is saying here, are totally, totally valid. And this is actually the part now that I really, really want to highlight. And that is what we heard from Texas Representative Henry Cuellar, Democratic representative. He also had visited the border, and his detail was the type of detail that I would love to have seen from the Biden administration, the type of openness, the type of transparency, or from a reporter. I also want to put up on the screen some of the other pictures of families that you say are being detained under a bridge, it appears. They're being given foil blankets. You tell us this is a temporary processing site and that they are waiting to get into a holding facility. These look like families outside under the elements. Are, are all of the people we're seeing here, were they expelled from the U.S. or were they released into the U.S.? So what we're seeing is at that particular facility, they might want to move them into a, another Border Patrol facility, uh, and if they don't, this is what's happening. Some will be returned, but over 2,000 of them 
have been released into the United States without a notice to appear. I emphasize, without a notice to appear at an immigration court. They're supposed to appear, uh, show up maybe in 60 days report uh, to a ICE office. President this Biden said this week that, that the majority of people were to be expelled under Title 42. What you are saying and what Customs and Border Patrol has also said to, to CBS News is that this is essentially not being fully enforced uh, as he explained it. You're saying people are being released. Well, uh, adults are pretty much returned. You know, 71 percent out of the 100,000 people that passed in, uh, in February are adults. Those are being returned, expelled back. Some family units are ex uh, turned back into Mexico, depending on the age of the kids. 13 and above are being returned. I know the president's right about they're working with Mexico, so Mexico do mm -hmm. more. But the rest of them, the family units, the family units are being released into the United States. That's where the burden of the border communities are felt. The cities, the counties, the NGOs, we're feeling the blunt of what's happening with the family units. So, wow, what a picture he paints there of what is going on at the border and the confusion and the lack of, of accountability taking place there. It's, it's really eye-opening to see. And also to hear from a Democrat. Again, this is a good example of people are elected because they know their communities and their communities trust them. And this is someone who really understands this issue because it really affects his district. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I don't want to give like full credit to all of these hosts for doing a great job in these interviews. John Carl, for instance, and also pretty much almost everyone who talked about this issue, almost all the all the hosts almost exclusively asked questions under the guise of why are all these people being released into the United States? Why aren't they all being turned around? Basically approaching it from a Republican premise of we need to have the border closed, it should be closed, and Title 42 should be enforced, rather than the premise of if these are asylum seekers and we believe in political asylum and asylum from violence, then why are we not letting more people in or being better at opening this up to all individuals who might be seeking shelter from the U.S.? Isn't this part of who we are as the U.S. to accept and asylum seekers? No questions right. along those Claiming lines. Claiming asylum is not illegal. Right, like, exactly. It is a legitimate process, an option for people to apply for to get into this country. And if your question or if your concern is about how many are claiming asylum, then as Congressman Cuellar mentioned, then you need to look at the root causes. And it's, where are those questions? Yeah, so there were, there were myriad problems related to this issue and how it was covered. But in this political section, I thought it was worth looking at how, how differently it is being discussed, whether it's someone from the Democratic administration or whether it's either Republicans or Democrats who have visited the site. And it's just <laughs> poor form. If you're in the administration, you've been in your office in the D.C. area and you seem out of touch. Yeah. Not stellar. Tell me about your issue in politics that stood out in the shows that you covered. So I'm going to return to Meet the Press. I'm focusing a lot on Meet the Press, mainly because State of the Union, I felt like 
didn't have a ton of newsy, new news <laughs> content. There was a giant interview that Dana Bash had with the Secretary of State, and it's interesting, but nothing was like earth shattering. So most of my clips are focusing on Meet the Press today. And I'm kind of returning to something I briefly talked touch base on, but on another issue. So my something in politics is focused on HR1, the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. And specifically in an interview with, again, Senator Pat Toomey, the lack of any effective probing follow-ups legitimizes totally craptastic premises by Senator Toomey. So take a listen to Senator Toomey concerned about voter fraud. I want to separate out H.R. 1 from the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Do you believe there is enough, there are 10 Republicans, to do an updated version of the Voting Rights Act, something that used to be fairly easy to get done in a bipartisan way? I know the issues with H.R. 1, and, I, and I'm trying to separate the two. Where are you on this? I, I mean... The, there is a completely false narrative about so-called voter suppression. You look at the Georgia law, there's no voter suppression. Sunday voting is still allowed. There's an expansion of uh, in-person voting. There's no well, requirement that you have yeah. a reason for a, a mail-in ballot. All you need is some, some verification of ID. And so does every Department of Transportation in, in America for, mm. in order to drive. So does every airline if you're going to get on a plane. So this has been a false narrative entirely, Chuck. And, and I'm afraid it's all about trying to get rid of the filibuster. Uh, We're not going to be cowed yeah. by being called racist over policy that has nothing to do with race. I, I, I understand your point of view there. I'm just curious. So do you think it's a good look for the party that after a presidential loss, after the former candidate basically creates a, a false narrative and lies about why it happened, that these law that these laws are getting changed under a false pretense? That's not a good look for the Republican Party, is it not? Well, well, Chuck, look, I was very critical of President Trump uh, along the way after the election, as, as I think you know, but we should be honest about this. We made very dramatic sweeping changes to accommodate the circumstances of a global pandemic mm -hmm. that had huge implications. And some of those sweeping changes include provisions that are really actually um, tough to verify the accuracy of the vote. And we have an awful lot of Americans who are worried about the integrity of our system. So some common sense measures like requiring an ID to get an absentee ballot or to vote, that just makes a lot of sense. What we don't hear in this follow-up from Chuck Todd is more of the questioning of Republican concern about voter fraud. There is such little evidence of voter fraud that is motivating all of these supposed new state laws. And if Republicans want to restrict voting access, then make them defend that. But don't, I don't know, like this, the, Toomey says, there's an awful lot of Americans who are worried about the integrity of our system. If you're not following up with that, with comments about the actual integrity of our system that right. is quite strong, then you make it seem as if that there is integrity issues. Yeah, and, and you're legitimizing Toomey's point. Well, I'm just like, I, I can't get past the weakness of Chuck Todd's follow-up, which is, do you think it's a good look for the party? Yeah, and then he says, I understand your point of view there. You're not saying, like, I understand that this is, like, 
effective messaging for you, but it's not true. At no point he's saying like... No, he's, it sounds like he's validating it. Right. Yeah. By saying like, what you're saying is understandable. But do you think it's a good look? Oh, yeah, all that's true. But is it a good look? Gross. And then going back to my point of why is the Meet the Press team leaning on the panel all the way at the end of the show to provide the fact check, we see it again on this very issue in which Heather McGee, who used to be with Demos and is now with the advocacy group Color of Change, she completely debunks this claim that there was voter fraud. A progressive, we should know. A progressive group. Right. Heather McGee, you saw at the end of my interview with Senator Toomey, he, he made a, a sort of an impassioned defense of some of these uh, of some of these ideas out there about voter IDs in particular here. And I I'm curious, can you separate the ideas that maybe he's putting up with what appears to be the motive behind all of these changes at the state level? Is it is it even possible to separate the two? Well, this is what happens when people who can't win a fair election um, try to rig the rules to make it harder for eligible citizens to vote. This is what you see happening. And it is a racist logic. Uh, It is an old tradition in this country of targeting uh, policies that we know disproportionately impact black and brown voters. We know that black and brown voters, for example, are less likely to have a government-issued photo identification. And yet, this is the way that systemic racism so often works today. It's also true that when you look at white Americans uh, who are young, white Americans who are low income, one out of five of them don't have a photo ID issued by the government. And yet, are there any less eligible citizens with the right to vote? The idea of voter fraud is something that happens 0.00003% of our elections. Um, and yet, it is a big lie. Instead, we have the the For the People Act yeah. that actually could address this creeping corruption in our democracy, whether it's the big flood of secret money, right. the partisan gerrymandering, or this desire to rig the rules so that eligible citizens can't vote. And the only way the Republicans can justify what is a bipartisan, actually majority of the American people support the provisions of the For the People Act, the only way the Republicans can justify opposing it and these 250 unpopular laws at the state level is with this big lie. Wow, that was uh, an excellent response with a lot of data that could have been deployed in a follow-up. Yeah, again, I have real issues with fact checks happening 20 minutes after an interview. But that said, at least it's a valuable panel, which isn't always the case. I know, I (laughs) know. This all could be like quality panel segment, like, or clips, but it's just making me feel certain feelings that I'm, feel itchy to me. Brendan, what's your moment in journalism you wanted to share with us? So this is actually related to all this talk about voter integrity, voter suppression, voting rights, and it's turning us back to this week. I found this week very controversial. I wanted to start by talking about the way John Carl approaches this issue related to bipartisanship. Bipartisanship, it is a topic that has been talked about ad nauseum and for good reason. Joe Biden 
made bipartisanship a major plank of his argument for running for president, for being president, saying that he had the ability to bring the country together with all of his relationships in the Senate. He could bring Republicans to the table to actually affect meaningful bipartisan change in our country. He made the promise, and now a lot of journalists are trying, and and Republicans as well, are trying to use that as a measure of his effectiveness of whether he's actually delivering, right? Well, just like it was an issue on his COVID relief bill, it's become an issue on this question about voting rights, voter integrity, election integrity. I had some major issues, however, with the way Jonathan Carl applied it to the conversation with both Democrats, Republicans, and within his own panel. Take a listen to how John Carl asks this question to Kate Bedingfield again. She is the communications director for Joe Biden. I mean, one thing that is that is truly concerning about this is these efforts are entirely party line. These are Republicans. These are partisan efforts. Uh, but even the, the effort in, in Congress to try to combat this is entirely without Republican support. I want to show you something that Joe Manchin said about the effort in Congress uh, to ensure voting rights. He said, pushing through legislation of this magnitude on a partisan basis may garner short-term benefits, but it will inevitably only exacerbate the distrust that millions of Americans harbor against the U.S. government. So does, I mean, obviously Joe Biden ran for president talking about bringing the country together. This seems to be a really tough one. Does he find, is he going to be able to find a way to get Republicans, Republicans in Congress uh, on board in a bipartisan effort uh, to deal with how we conduct our elections? Well, this is a question for the Republicans, isn't it, John? I mean, well, it's, it's, it's the a question for it, well, well, it's, well it's, a, it's a question. It's a question for, for for President Biden on you know what is his plan to try to you know bring Republicans on board to this, or, or are they a lost cause? I mean, how, how does the White House view this? That's I would say that's a question for them. That President Biden has been very clear that this is something he believes needs to happen. You know, we there's a lot of conversation about how this legislation could move forward in the Senate and discussion of what we need to do to the filibuster. But you know, I thought Senator Warnock uh, was right on about this uh, yesterday or a couple of days ago when he said, you know, we wouldn't have to be talking about the filibuster if uh, Republicans were talking about supporting voting rights. So John Carl couches the question in a quote by Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, who we've heard a lot about, <laughs> He's, uh, and we've talked a lot about. Uh, I just want to note that H.R. 1, which we have been talking about, the For the People Act, is co-sponsored by 49 Democrats out of the 50 Democrats in the Senate. Can you guess which one is the one Democrat who is not co-sponsoring H.R. 1? Gee whiz, is it Manchin? It is Joe Manchin. So Joe Manchin certainly has his reasons for critical being critical of the bill because he doesn't necessarily support the bill he has his reasons for saying it should be bipartisan because he's not really uh, on board with it right now but all that said let's look at what what is actually being asked here by john carl john carl at the start of his question says that quote one thing that is truly concerning about this these efforts are entirely party line So John Carl is making a a judgment there. He's saying that it is concerning that Republicans are being partisan in their efforts in the states and that Democrats are being partisan in their efforts in the Congress and that Democrats are going to have to answer his question about how they're going to make this a bipartisan effort to protect voting rights. But again, 
I feel like this is just another version of what we pointed out in the Nate Silver segment, approaching the issue of voting rights, the issue of the Democratic franchise as just another political football that one party is, you know, is on one side, the other party is on the other side, and we should look for, you know, the, the right place is the bipartisan middle place. And that historically has not been the case. You know, you look back from the civil, you know, look at the Civil War era, right? Where you had Republicans who were very much the party that was the anti-slavery party, right? And to say that, oh, they should have just, they should have just, you know, been bipartisan about their anti-slavery ways. Or you look at the civil rights era when Democrats, not necessarily Southern Democrats, but a lot of Democrats were the party of civil rights. And on the other side, you had an opposing party that wanted to restrict the rights to vote. Like, voting rights have historically not been a bipartisan issue in the grand sweep of America. There has often been one party that was trying to expand the voting franchise, including looking look at the women's right to vote, right? It has often been a partisan issue where people are voting, you know, are fighting for the right to vote. And so to assume that this issue, that, that the, the North Star, the moral center, is in bipartisanship and not in the Democratic franchise, the franchise of democracy, is actually the concerning side of this, right? But yet this, this narrative that bipartisanship is the North Star that we should all be seeking when it comes to voting rights continues throughout the show. And John Carl moment after moment, exposes himself as somebody who sees bipartisanship as far and above the right of citizens to vote. Take a listen to how he continues in the episode in his conversation with Alaskan Republican Senator Dan Sullivan. But to your point, normally, in, in uh, you were talking about this with Kate, normally in our when you look at the history in our country, Individual voting issues in states is not normally the reason that the impetus to bring major bipartisan national federal legislation unless there is strong bipartisan support for this. And so I think that's the key issue. And right now, H.R. 1, the Pelosi bill from the House, um, is not only doesn't have uh, support from Republicans, it doesn't have support from many Democrats. So again, the key issue here is to work on this issue in a bipartisan yeah. nature. You know, the last major I mean, voting reform. I mean, no, no, no question, no question. And 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 I mean, that this effort should be bipartisan. But the efforts we're seeing in the states are are entirely partisan. These are coming from Republicans. There, he, there he is, John Carl saying directly. No question, this effort should be bipartisan even though it's crystal clear, and literally later on the broadcast, Nate Silver makes it clear that one party has the political incentive and the political will to reduce and restrict the rights of people to vote. And yet it should be bipartisan. Why should there be a compromise? Why should, why is it okay? Why is it the, something that should happen that voting rights should be restricted a little bit so that it's bipartisan? How do you feel about these journalists making these value judgments like this? I have issues with most people putting value judgments on things. But um, I think there's something worth exploring here in that 
it's the Biden administration that said they were going to strive for bipartisanship, right? That bipartisanship was possible and, you know, all this stuff. Yes. I don't understand why. I mean, I guess I kind of understand. But like Democrats in Congress never promised that. Right. Right. And so I wish there was more owning of their respective power in kind of their own lane in that you don't have to go the full throat framing of the White House that everything has to be bipartisanship to be meaningful to the country. And I wish that there was an appetite to push beyond that narrative when journalists are using that narrative too, right? It's like like someone has to question the premise itself saying, actually, we don't have to have bipartisanship on this. We think this is, there's the right side of history on this and this is what we're going to fight for. And this is the framing that we are coming from and we'd love to talk about it. Too many times politicians stay within the framing that is provided by the interviewer or the journalist or the host. And it's not disrespectful to push beyond it, right? If, If you're an apt enough messenger, you can say, I hear where you're coming from. This is the motivation behind that framing. Let me explain where I'm coming from. Yeah, I, I think maybe what, what triggered this whole reaction to John Carl here is a tweet that I saw from NYU journalism professor Jay Rosen, who we don't always agree with, but we do appreciate. And he tweeted this on March 23rd saying, quote, there should be tight guidelines and an editor's sign off required for newsroom use of the word bipartisanship, which should also be recognized as one of the most ideological or as academics would say contested terms in the political journalist's lexicon, end quote. And I think he's on to something there because what does it mean to be bipartisan? We have talked about this recently on Polylog because we recently heard different takes on whether the COVID relief bill was bipartisan, right? The Biden administration was arguing that it was bipartisan because, look, it's supported by a bipartisan contingent of people when they're polled in the country, not necessarily a bipartisan group of Congress people. Or you see someone like Joe Manchin saying, look, it's bipartisan because uh, we integrated a lot of Republican ideas into this bill, even though they didn't end up voting for it, but it's still bipartisan, right? There's so many different ways to cut that and say whether it's bipartisan or it is not bipartisan. And it is held up as this kind of political ideal within the eyes of the press, as we see here by Jonathan Carl. And yet it's unclear what that actually means and also whether that actually is the highest ideal that should be held up in an instance where we're talking about voting rights or voting suppression. So I think this is really, you know, you could quibble with how Carl is approaching this, or you could defend it as you did, Naomi, saying, look, the Biden administration invited this by saying that he was going to be bipartisan, but there just needs to be a lot more intelligence around the use of that term, or at least journalists need to be more explicit by what they mean by it. And that's not even mentioning that there are also other tactical reasons why it's actually very legitimate to ask about bipartisanship. For example, how are Democrats actually going to achieve the goal of doing anything in protecting voting rights if it needs to get through the Senate and they don't get rid of the filibuster? In which case things stay the same and you absolutely need bipartisanship. You need 10 extra votes right now, the Democrats do, in order to pass anything under the current rules. So 
It could very well be a tactical position that John Carl is approaching the question, but he doesn't actually approach it from that direction. He approaches it from the direction of this is this is absolutely just how it should be because that's that's how voting rights should should be. He doesn't really expand upon that. He doesn't justify it and he doesn't define it. So that's all I have to say on that. I'm sure there's more that we will say and we will do better at kind of like dissecting it and di- and looking at this in the future. Yeah, I mean, and maybe this is kind of an early dialogue challenge, but yes. like I would question or I would encourage our listeners to kind of have a gut check about what they think bipartisanship means, right? Yeah. Is it literally one Republican or one person from the other party that agrees? Is it a majority of American voters that feel good about it? Is it, I mean, like, there's so many different variations when people talk about bipartisanship. And based off of how you think about it or how the other person thinks about it, may determine how important you think it is. And we assume it's important for everybody when everyone is kind of thinking about different versions of it. And so it it could be a helpful exercise to explore how you interpret bipartisanship and how necessary you think it is for American governance. Yeah, it's fascinating to me that it has become such a such a hallowed thing in a world where our political parties have both been getting a lot more a lot more polarized. Naomi, that takes us to show rankings. How or ratings, I should say. What are your show ratings this week? So I think I will say State of the Union is a four. It's like a fine episode, but again, there's not a ton of earth shattering news. And I felt like the main interview with the Secretary of State was kind of going through just a bunch of different diplomacy issues. Done well, I guess I would say. It's something, if you catch it on Tuesday or Wednesday even of this week, it's it's not. If you catch it on Tuesday or Wednesday, you could still find some value from it. And I guess I would say meet the press. Mm, this is tricky because I had a lot of issues with it. Yeah, but they they. I think I do a forward just issue. because, yeah, I appreciate when they do these special episodes, when they hone in on an issue. I think in comparison to some of their other special episodes, there was less like, this is the summary of our research, which would have been nice. But in general, I think it's commendable when the Sunday shows do kind of a targeted topic like this. So four. How about you? What are your ratings? I'd give Face the Nation a four. I think Margaret Brennan, even though I didn't talk a lot about her, I, I think their show did a really good job of focusing in on what Americans are really thinking about, and that is COVID. I mean, that is still dominating every conversation I have pretty much with everyone at any every moment. And a lot of these shows have focused on other issues, and we at Polylog appreciate that because we don't want to be broken records here talking about the same thing every week. But that is the news. I mean, the news is COVID, right? There are these other political stories, but the news in most people's lives is COVID. And I think Face Nation did a good job on that issue. And Margaret Brennan did have on that excellent interview with the Democratic congressman. So that's a four. I would also give, I believe, Fox News Sunday a four. I think Chris Wallace's focused, you know, questions on that panel were really, really good. And I appreciate him providing that, that sunlight into the issue, although their panel, again, seemed to have two Republican voices and one progressive voice. 
Fox News Sunday used to be the one that was most balanced in their panel. You can look at uh, Media Matters and their analysis of the makeup of the panels and see that Fox News historically has been the best at that. Lately, they have really been slipping and sliding down that down that scale, and they have had way, way, way more Republican voices on than Democratic voices. And that is frankly unexcusable. I should say inexcusable, I think is the proper word for that. But there is really no excuse for it now. Sometimes you could have the excuse when like a Republican was in charge of the White House or Republicans were in charge of a certain House of Congress. They're not in charge of anything right now. And so this is just just really a mess. Um, And I hope that the times that we have seen are just flukes and maybe someone canceled the last minute. But yeah, big thumbs down on that. And this week, they have got to be a two. It was a bad episode. I think that John Carl framing on so many different things was just wrong or misguided or missed the boat and didn't really elucidate a lot. And then we had the Nate Silver thing. So I just think they they had the wrong take and wrong direction on so many issues. I think that's your lowest ratings yet. Have you given it to before? I don't think so. Maybe Feels I good, huh? No, I want these shows to do a good job. <laughs> I, I want fine, them to do a really good job. Fine, whatever. You're no fun. We kind of did a dialogue challenge during your segment. Can but you reiterate what that was? Yeah, I just think people should do a gut check and examine how they define bipartisanship and how much they value it and have a conversation with someone that matters to you about that. It means different things to different people. If you want to share some of your thoughts on bipartisanship or anything else from the show, you can email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can tweet at me at Naomi underscore. You can tweet at me at bstidle and you can tweet at the show at polylogcast. Thanks everyone. And we will talk to you next week. Talk with you then. Bye. Bye.